All right, uh, we are, have a memory verse for next week. I hope you'll be able to get this one. <laughs> now, you've got to, if you're old like me, you've got to forget the King James here. That's the problem. But here it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not, not perish but have eternal life. So it's not too far off from the familiar in the NIV here. So we'll test you on that next week. And uh, I won't tell you what the penalty is, but it's really bad if you, if you can't, can't get it, okay? Um, so we have finished the prologue, which was the introduction we said, and we're looking at Jesus' early ministry in Judea and Jerusalem at this point, uh, 119 through 225. And we said... Last week, I think if you, I should mention that the live chat is mentioning for, uh, is working for those who are uh, on the live stream. So you can, you can uh, ask a question and Pastor Larry is going to prompt me if somebody has a question or something. Um, but I mentioned before that if you read the synoptic gospels, it looks like Jesus, after his baptism, goes right into Galilee and he spends his time in Galilee and so forth. But, of course, the gospel writers don't tell everything that Jesus did and all that he did. And John picks up some places, a number of areas that the synoptics don't cover and he doesn't cover a number of areas they cover. And so what we see is this early ministry in Judea and Jerusalem that we don't see much of in the other gospels. Now, we looked last time at the marriage at Cana in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And uh, we notice in verse 11, what Jesus did here at Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So we've covered the actual miracle of turning the water into wine at the wedding where Jesus was invited, was there with his mother, family, and so forth. And this is the first of those signs. You remember that there are a series of signs, but here is, uh, here's where we're at. We're at Cana. I got my big pointer tonight, as you can see. <laughs> so uh, there's Cana. We're in Galilee, this region of Galilee here which was governed by one of Herod's sons, Herod the great son, Herod Antipas. And Jesus has a lot of interaction here. This is Nazareth, where he grew up, born in Bethlehem, but grew up here in Nazareth. Cana is not that far and so forth. And um, I say here, this was the first of Christ's miracles. So here we have these signs. We said John likes to use the term sign to talk about Jesus' miracles. There's actually three words in Greek for, for miracle, and this is one of them. It's, it emphasizes the sign value, the significance, the meaning. It has some special meaning. So changing water into wine is the first one of these that we encounter. I say, I mentioned this last week, that later pseudepigraphal literature, what's pseudepigraphal? Pseudepigraphal means false writing or really false author. That is, in the ancient world, a lot of people would write things and claim they were written by somebody else, by some famous person, 
in order to get somebody to read what they were writing. It was pretty common. Now, that would be illegal today <laughs> with modern laws and so forth, but people did it all the time. And so people after the first century, the second century, said that they, they wrote, you can find all kinds of the Gospel of Paul, Gospel of Peter, all kinds of infancy narratives. And I mentioned, you know, these miracles that are recorded, Jesus making a wooden bird and causing it to fly and so forth. As a child, he was doing a bunch of miracles. Well, this, of course, this verse shows that that was not happening because this is his first one. So he didn't really reveal himself at all as a miracle worker of any kind of special powers, too much at least, up as far as we know, up until this particular time. Jesus' miracles, you know, if we think about those, they were never intended as naked displays of power or they were never intended as tricks to impress the masses or anything. They are signs that have a deeper meaning, a deeper reality. And they really are understood only more fully through the eyes of faith. Um, and through these miracles, his omnipotence is revealed. We understand that and so forth. And the faith of his disciples increased as they saw what he was doing. He didn't immediately reveal himself and say, listen, fellas, I'm the second person of the Godhead, you know? I mean, he didn't, he didn't just lay all this stuff out, this Trinitarian theology that we understand. They learned about this gradually as they knew him, saw the miracles he did, and so forth. Well, now we come to the cleansing of the temple, 2.12 through 22. So still in Jerusalem, still in Judea. The setting here, uh, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, they stayed there for a few days. This was almost the time for the Jewish Passover. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So at this time, apparently, Jesus moves uh, from Nazareth here. His family apparently moves from Nazareth over here to the north side of the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum right here. And this is where we see Jesus, you know, featured quite a bit in Galilee later on. So they moved to Capernaum. Uh, this is, I say, in the spring before the first Passover of his ministry. Uh, Capernaum was on this northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. They stayed only a few days because they had to leave to celebrate the Passover. Remember, according to Jewish law in the Old Testament, every male, every adult male, was supposed to come to Jerusalem to celebrate three feasts every year. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, I mean the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Passover and Unleavened Bread being together. So uh, they, they are preparing to do that. Now we notice here that there is no mention of Joseph. Uh, he went down with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. No mention of his mother. Uh, uh, no mention of his sisters, actually. We know from the synoptics that Jesus had at least two sisters and four brothers. Uh, maybe that's all. We don't know for sure. Uh, but uh, the fact that Joseph is not mentioned suggests that probably he has he died. He's not mentioned anywhere in the, in the accounts in the Gospels when Jesus is in ministry, his mother's mentioned, but not Joseph. So we assume Joseph has died at this point. 
and we assume his sisters not being in the family here, uh, we assume they're married, probably. This is, we don't know for sure. Um, so when the time for the annual spring feast of the Passover, March, April time frame, remember, uh, Jesus went down to Jerusalem. Now, John mentions, uh, I say here, three Passovers. He mentions 213, he mentions 64 and 1155, specifically calling those uh, times Passovers. There's possibly a fourth, 5-1. Now this chart says possibly tabernacles. It's unnamed. Many people think that it is a Passover. Now, if that's true, that there are four Passovers mentioned, that means Jesus' ministry is three and a half years. You may have heard that. Jesus' ministry was three and a half years. Well, this is where it comes from. It comes from the number of Passovers that are mentioned by John in his Gospels. So that would begin, if this dating is correct, his ministry would begin around A.D. 26, ending in the spring of A.D. 30. So the first Passover would be A.D. 27, second A.D. 28, third A.D. 29. We don't, we're not positive about this dating. This is approximately the right time uh, for the dating of Jesus' ministry. The Passover, I say, was celebrated on the 14th day of the lunar month of Nisan. So remember, the Jews have a lunar calendar. So uh, they don't have a solar calendar, so therefore the lunar calendar gets off <laughs> because you only got 360 days, and so you eventually, the seasons get off, and you have to correct. You have to add time in and so forth. So they're on a different calendar, and uh, they have different names for their months. And so that, 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 uh, that time uh, for Nisan... Uh, varies on our solar calendar. So uh, our solar calendar differs from the Jewish calendar. Uh, the 14th day was sometime the end of March, beginning of April. That's why Easter varies. The date of Easter, the date of Easter, the, the, the early church was trying to fix the date as close to the Jewish Passover as they could. Now, it's not exactly right today, but anyway, that's what, they're, that's what they were struggling to do, and that's why Easter can be in March and Easter can be in April. You're trying to approximate the time of the Passover, the time of, of Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, so Passover was followed in by this seven-day festival of unleavened bread uh, each year. So we saw the setting here, the cleansing of the temple, Jesus now has gone down. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So even though this is in the north, you know, even though Galilee's in the north, you go up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is much higher up. Uh, it's just higher. It's, it's in the mountain ranges of Judea and it's higher geographically. Galilee is down low. It's pretty low. Notice the action here. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So here's a, uh, a drawing of what the temple would have looked like and the temple mount. So this is the temple area right here. Here's the temple. Uh, you know, here's the 
court of the men. Here's the court of the women here. And uh, here's the uh, courts out here, court of the Gentiles. So this is the temple. And then Herod expanded this thing, make it really wide here. He, he, didn't, he didn't go any further east. This is east. He went further west, uh, expanded it this way, went further north and south, expanded this way. Generally, when you went to the temple, you come in to this area. If you ever go to Jerusalem, you'll see these steps. And you can walk up these steps here. At These, these entrances have been blocked now, but there were entrances here. You would come up in further steps, and you'd come up to the temple mount through those steps. This was the main entrance. There were other entrances, but this is how most people came into the temple from the south side. This is, uh, this is where the Sanhedrin, would have, the royal stoa, where the Sanhedrin probably met by the time of Paul's day here. And uh, you see this, uh, this barrier here is called the balustrade. So this, this, this is where Gentiles are not allowed to cross. Now here's a model of that in Jerusalem. Uh, it's been moved from this location since I was there. It used to be at a place called the Holy Land Hotel. They call it the model at the Holy Land Hotel, but now they moved it, I understand, to the uh, Israeli Museum. But it's the same principle. You see the temple here. You see the court of the Gentiles. So this is where Jesus taught a lot. This right here, these pillars right here, that's called in King James Solomon's porch or, you know, where, where he taught there and so forth. So Gentiles were allowed there, but Gentiles couldn't cross this balustrade right here. So only Jews could come into this area. Gentiles were allowed out here. And you remember in the book of Acts, when Paul comes back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey, he gets falsely accused of bringing a Gentile across that balustrade. And there's a big riot, and they almost kill Paul, you know, and, and uh, they... Uh, they, the, the soldiers come and, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to see how I could go back here, but I had to bring my pointer all right back. I won't go back. <laughs> I'm going to bring my pointer back over there. Uh, so that's, that's what we're talking about here. So I say here it was more convenient for people coming to the temple from a distance to buy their sacrificial animals on site. So you had to come, you were offering a sacrifice, for the Passover and so forth. Uh, and that was true for anybody who came to offer a sacrifice to the temple. It was easier to just get an animal, a, a dove or something at, at the area there rather than try to bring it yourself. Um, so they provided for the sale of animals and fowls. There was also a temple tax levied on all Jewish males between the ages of 20 and 50. This goes back to Exodus 30. Exodus 30, Moses talked about when you come into the land and there's the tabernacle, uh, we're going to have kind of a census uh, to see who can fight, what kind of military men, and you come across this line. Anyway, you got to pay this half shekel tax. It supports the, the, the tax was to support the Levites in the temple. And so this was a, this was a thing that was collected. Is he, in Paul's day, it was even collected and, and outside Jerusalem, Jews would send their temple tax. You know, the Orthodox Jews would send their temple tax back to Jerusalem uh, as, as an annual tax to support the temple. 
so the tax had to be paid in local coinage. Uh, so therefore, you have these people exchanging money, setting up tables, exchanging money, taking their, their, their coins from another area of the empire and bringing them and exchanging for the local coins and so forth. Uh, so this outer court here kind of now begins to resemble like a marketplace. There's all kinds of tables. It's, you know, it's become like a, a big, uh, uh, what would you call it? Uh, <laughs> flea market, yes. <laughs> it's kind of become like a big flea market there is what it sounds like it's become. And um, so uh, what ha originally, the, the, when originally these, these things were not in the temple courts. They were in a valley called the Kidron Valley. But as time goes on, they moved here, and now they're all there. Um, now, though it may be true that there was some corruption, some say there may have been some corruption in exchanging money. You, know, you turn your money in, you get a little fee for that. That's not what Jesus' complaint is about. He's not upset about the corruption, as we'll see. Notice verse 15. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all, the temple, uh, drove, drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. So I say Jesus' complaints, not that there are unethical business practices going on, but these kinds of things should not be taking place in the temple at all. How do you dare turn my father's house into a market? So he makes this whip out of cords and attempted to disperse the merchants and their wares. I say since he was a single man alone, and since this is not indicated to be a miraculous event, now maybe it is, but it doesn't say that. It just says he made this whip and he starts you know, doing this. Apparently, you know, this was chiefly moral and spiritual. I mean, here's this guy doing this. You know, they probably realized this is wrong, you know, but he's beating them and getting them out. Uh, there may be an, an allusion here to uh, Malachi chapter 3. It doesn't say that, but it may be. This is talking about uh, a messianic prophecy here. Malachi does, and he said, I will send my messenger who will prepare the ways before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. He will set as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. So there may be some allusion to that. So this could be, a, this is probably a sign of Jesus' messiahship. Here is this guy who comes with just this whip and people are responding to this. I mean, they see that, you know, he seems to be some person of power or some important person. Uh, they may have thought that, you know, he was a prophet or something. They were probably unsure. Um, but, you know, they, they, they responded by, by, uh, by leaving, obviously, or attempting to leave. Um, Notice he says, how dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? Notice he doesn't say our father's house. He says my father's house. So this shows Jesus' consciousness, his unique consciousness, consciousness of his unique relationship to, his, to the father. You know, uh, He's saying he's my father in a way. I mean, God is our father, but 
God is Jesus' Father in a way that He's not our Father. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's a unique relationship. So here we see Jesus is conscious of that. There's a lot of debate about theologians about when did the human Jesus become conscious of the divine logos? I mean, he's a baby, right? His brain is developing. His human brain is developing. That Luke says he grew in you know, wisdom and so forth like that. So, so obviously there must have probably came a time when the human became aware, the divine logos imparted to the human you know, here's this knowledge, here's who you are, you know, the human and the divine. Yes? Well, it had to be sometime before he was 12, right? Sure. Sure. Right. Yeah. But, you know, not when he was two days old, you know. It wouldn't do any good then. You know, he had to get the brain functioning and all that, yeah. So, uh, verse 17, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. As a result of this action, the disciples were reminded of a passage in a messianic psalm, Psalm 69.9. This is the psalmist crying out to God because of the opposition of his enemies who fail to appreciate the psalmist's concern and commitment to the temple. Jesus is concerned with pure worship, especially at the place supremely set aside for worship. And this concern is going to get him in real trouble as time goes on. He's going to face increasing opposition from the religious leaders about this concern for pure worship. Well, let's see the response, 2.18 through 22. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? How can you prove your authority to do all this? I say here, these Jews were either temple authorities or probably representatives of the Sanhedrin. They did have the right, remember, to examine the credentials of someone who had taken this kind of drastic action. But unfortunately, they were not concerned whether the cleansing of the temple was right or wrong. They weren't concerned with what was going on there, which was wrong. They weren't only with the question of authority. The fact they did not treat Jesus as a criminal but asked for signs indicates they, might, they thought he might be a real prophet. So they, they were unsure, obviously, who is, who is this man at this time. And actually, by cleansing the temple, Jesus had given them a sign, but they were sort of you know, obviously spiritually blind to the significance of it. Uh, well, Jesus then goes on to give them a veiled prophecy of his resurrection. That's the greatest sign that's yet to come, his resurrection. Notice what he says. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, what? <laughs> no, they didn't say that, but they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it, destroy it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So I say Jesus gives a rather enigmatic response to the request for a sign. Of course, the Jewish authorities as well as disciples failed to understand his intention. Both groups were thinking of the physical temple he had just cleansed. This statement by Jesus is used as a charge against him at his trial, remember? Mark 14, then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him, that's against Jesus. We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days 
will build another not made with hands. I say here the construction of the temple had been going on for 46 years. The temple refers to the entire temple complex, that is the temple proper and all the outer courts, all that esplanade, all that great building, massive building that Herod did. He began this reconstruction uh, of the surrounding complex in the 18th year of his reign. That's about 2019 B.C., but was not completed until 63, 64. Now, he was long dead. <laughs> they were still working on this thing when, you know, Jesus was there. They were still hadn't completed it until 63, 64. And remember, the Romans destroyed it in AD 70, so it didn't stay completed for long. The 46th year would be 80, 26, 27. Thus, this Passover was presumably what I told you before, probably the spring of AD 27. And then we see inadequate faith. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. I say at this same Passover festival, many people saw the signs Jesus was performing. So there was more than that Cana miracle. Now in Jerusalem, he's performing signs, miracles beyond Cana. This is after the miracle of Cana. Now they're not preserved for us, at least in the Gospel of John here, you know, so we don't, you know, but here's John 20, you know, says, John at the end of his book says, Jesus performed many other signs besides these seven that I'm going to mention primarily. He performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. Remember he says, if you had to record everything, it wouldn't be enough book, big enough book written to do that. So, so Jesus did other miracles John is focusing on certain particular ones. The effect of seeing these signs was that many people believed in his name. Now that's that Greek word pistuo, you know, John 3.16. Whoever believes, that's pistuo, that's the common Greek word for believe. Uh, but remember I said that this word believe doesn't, you have to tell by context whether the belief is genuine are not genuine. So uh, many people believe Pistuo in his name. However, John knows that Jesus would not entrust. Actually, it's the same word, Pistuo. <laughs> so the sense is many believed in Jesus, but Jesus was not believing in them. Many believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe. He didn't entrust. He didn't commit himself to them. So there were superficial faith. We know that from the Gospels, that many people were just attracted by his miracles. Remember that we just said he did many signs. That's attracting a lot of believers, you know, a lot of things. People are enthralled by signs and wonders. And they attend to many churches because they're enthralled by signs and wonders and what they think, what they see and so forth like that. So their faith was superficial. Uh, it wasn't genuine. Um, as I said, this word does not always indicate uh, saving faith. I remember, here's John, here's James 2.19. You believe, there it is, pistuo, 
You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe. They believe. And that, that, but their demons are not saved. Remember we said there are those three aspects to faith, genuine faith. You know, there's knowledge. You've got to know things. The demons know things. In the Gospels, they, they know who Jesus is. They know he's the Son of God. You know, they know that. You have to accept it as true. They accept it as true, but there's that third part. <laughs> you have to entrust yourself. You have to commit. You have to say, I'm trusting Jesus to save me. I'm committing myself to him and nothing else. And the demons aren't doing that. And many people don't do that, unfortunately. So we always talk about professions of faith. We're all professors of faith, you know, and we accept people's profession in this church. If you come forward and you profess faith in Christ, uh, we, we, we're happy, <laughs> we're thrilled that you have professed faith in Christ. And, you know, if you want to join the church, we, uh, you have that form you fill out and it says on there, when did you believe and what did you believe, you know, and we try to see if you understand the gospel, make sure you understand the gospel. And, you know, we talk to you and, and things like that and so on. That's, what, that's all we can do is just examine and see, if, you know, just make sure people understand what they're believing and know. And, but if you've been here enough years, in the 20 years, you know that there are people who probably have made those kind of commitments and then left. I mean, not all people who leave are not Christians, but, you know, they just, they just were superficial, apparently. You know, we don't know. Who knows the hearts of all people? We don't know, but it seems pretty obvious that some people make commitments, say they commit, but they really haven't, yes. Did you have a question? Commitment or trust? Yeah. Trusting was the third. Okay, it was knowledge, uh, assent, A-S-S-E-N-Assent. So you have to, I mean, those two kind of go together. You have to know something. Now, they, they're not, they don't always go together. Uh, I mean, if you go to a theological library, say the seminary library, or even my library, <laughs> what I used to have in my <laughs> library, <laughs> but... You can find books in there by people who are explaining the Gospel of John who don't believe much of it at all. They're experts at it. I mean, you can go to all kinds of universities. You can go to University of Michigan and get a degree in Semitics and Old Testament. But that doesn't mean you have to believe any of it. <laughs> you just study it as a historical document. So you can believe, you can know it very well. There's a lot of people who know it, but they don't believe it. They don't accept, they don't assent to it as true. And then there's a step beyond that, and that's trust or commitment. Those are the three elements that we commonly... Just to, know it. to know it, yeah, the yeah. Yeah, and some people don't know because they haven't been told. You have to be told first. You've got to know. You've got to read the Word. Somebody's got to tell you the Gospel. You've got to know first. And then you have to accept that as true. I mean, we don't probably hear a lot of that. I mean, we, we might, I guess, you know. But especially the trust part. But the demons don't have that part. All right, let's look on at uh, chapter 3 now. Nicodemus and the new birth. I say, now we see an example of what Jesus meant when he told us that Jesus knew all people. Jesus is able to go right to the heart of Nicodemus's problem. 
We first see the interview with Nicodemus, 3, 1 through 21. We begin with the circumstances. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So we're told here that Nicodemus belonged to the Jewish sects called, one of the Jewish sects called the Pharisees. This name literally means separated ones. Their movement goes back, their roots go back to a movement of pious Jews in the Maccabean period who opposed attempts to introduce Hellenism into Jewish culture in the second century BC. You should have taken my class on Between the Testament. There's <laughs> a lot in that sentence, but we all know about the Pharisees, but they're not mentioned in the Old Testament. That's because they didn't come into existence until the second century BC. That's 100 BC to 200 BC. That's when they came into existence. So the Jews, remember after the kingdom was divided, the northern kingdom was taken into captivity, the southern kingdom was taken into captivity, then the Jews were allowed to return, but then they were conquered by the Greeks and they took over the empire, Alexander the Great and his associates. Eventually the Jews were able to rebel against the Greeks or the Seleucids in the second century BC. 167, they started a revolt. It's called the Maccabean Revolt after the name of the family that started the revolt. There was a priest and his sons called the Maccabees, this family, and they started this revolt and they started it in Jerusalem and it spread and spread and spread and eventually they were able to conquer all of Israel, the whole territory. So time you get to the first century BC, 50 BC, they, they're controlling everything. And they've actually entered into an alliance with Rome. So Rome is friendly with them and so forth. It's during this period that these religious sects come up. They're, at least they're talked about. The history talks about the rise of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were part of this religious movement, these pious Jews that rebelled against these Seleucid oppressors who were oppressing them in the second century. And this came to be called the Pharisees. They were very orthodox, as I say here. The Pharisees were uh, laymen. They opposed the introduction of Hellenism. What's that? That's the word for Greek. So the Greek word for Greek is Hellene. H-E-L-L-E-N. So Hellenism means Greek. And Hellenism means imposing Greek culture, you know, upon people. It's just like today. I just think, yeah, it's true. You know, a lot of countries you hear this, we don't like this American culture being imposed upon us, you know. We got this American music and these American movies and this American everything. You know, they don't like it. You know, we want our, we want our own culture. We want our own language. The French particularly are, <laughs> don't like that, you know. So that's what happened here. Greek culture, Greek language was just dominating everything and they were opposed to that because people were adopting it. Jews were adopting Greek fashion, Greek dress, Greek religion, Greek culture, everything Greek, you know. They loved it. And the, the Pharisees opposed that Hellenism, that adoption of that. As I say, they were, they were mostly laymen. That is, they were just people who had jobs. Every Pharisee had to have a trade. Like Paul was a tent maker. He was a Pharisee. Even though he was a trained rabbi and all that, he still had to have this trade. All Pharisees were basically laymen except for their leaders who were scribes. 
Scribes is a bad name in the sense that when we think of a scribe, we think of somebody who's copying manuscripts. Well, they had people who did that, but scribes really means experts in the law. Sometimes it's translated lawyers in the King James, and that's not so bad. They're really experts in the Old Testament law, and they interpreted the scriptures according to what they call the oral law. So what happened over time is they're developed alongside the written Old Testament, the Torah, especially the first five books, an interpretation of that, what's called the oral law. And at this time, Jews taught, and they still believe today, to this very day, in this oral law. They believe when Moses gave the law on Mount Sinai, he also gave interpretations of it. Now, these were interpretations were not written down until after the time of Jesus, but they were talked about in the Gospels. Jesus said, the law, you, you say, you say this, but the law says this. He's talking about their interpretation, their religious interpretations, this, uh, as I say here, tradition of the elders, halakha, they called it, which they had was as ancient. And so they had these strict rules about what you could do, what you couldn't do. They were very strict, very strict uh, kind of laws the Pharisees had. Um, their descendants today are Orthodox Jews. So when you think about Orthodox Jews, now there's a long line of history between the Pharisees and the Orthodox Jews, but Orthodox Jews today who observe all these rules about what you can eat, what you can't eat, you know, kosher food, non-kosher food, that's the Pharisees' tradition being passed down to this day. Uh, so they had rules that govern every circumstance. We had the Sadducees, you remember they're mentioned too, uh, they're not mentioned here, but the Sadducees. The Sadducees were, it was another group that developed in that same period as the Pharisees. They, 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 uh, they liked that Hellenism. They adopted a lot of that Greek culture. They were very political. Uh, they were mainly priests, and they were concerned with the temple worship. And the Sadducees controlled the priesthood, and they controlled the office of the high priest. They were the re religious authorities. They were really in control. Now, the Pharisees had the, air, had the ear of the people, as you know. They had a lot of power like that. But the Pharisees were technically, Sadducees technically in control. They consisted of wealthy aristocratic families that, as I say, controlled the office of high priest, politically oriented, and so forth. Their strength was the temple. When the temple was destroyed in AD 70, the Sadducees ceased to exist. We don't have any documents written by Sadducees, nothing. Everything we know about them, we know because the Pharisees tell us <laughs> or because church fathers, early church Christians tell us about them. They tell us about Sadducees. But the Sadducees as a sect, just they're gone because the temple's gone. The Pharisees continued on. It becomes what's called rabbinic Judaism of the Middle Ages and ultimately Orthodox Judaism from that. So uh, Nicodemus is a member of the Jewish ruling council. That's the Sanhedrin. It was a combination legislative and judicial body that had internal control over Jewish affairs. So the Romans allowed the Sanhedrin to control internal affairs among Jews. Uh, later in verse 10, we'll see that Nicodemus is called Israel's teacher or the teacher of Israel. So he's a recognized teacher. He's a recognized authority in the Sanhedrin. 
He came to Jesus at night, verse 2, and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. It's, it's hard to know if there's any particular significance to, to John saying, Nicodemus came at night. Maybe there's nothing. <laughs> Maybe it's just true. He came at night. Maybe because he didn't want others to see or something, but it's hard to say. Maybe he was a coward. Some people say it symbolizes moral and spiritual darkness. We don't know exactly. how. He, but he did come at night, obviously. But Nicodemus' own night was blacker than he knew. He thought he was... He thought he was okay with God. You know, when he goes to Jesus, he thinks, hey, I'm there, you know. I'm in the Sanhedrin, so forth. He probably was representing more, himself, more than himself because he says, uh, we know that you are a teacher. So maybe that plural indicates he's representing others too, the authorities. I say Nicodemus has not actually asked a question, but the implication is that he wants to know who Jesus is. We know you're a teacher who's come from God, but, you know, who are you? Are you a prophet? Are you the Messiah? What, what is this, you know? We knew how you cleansed the temple and all that kind of stuff. What, what's going on here, buddy? Tell us who you are. Here's the discussion, 3-3 through 21. The new birth is essential for entering God's kingdom. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Of course, the kingdom of God is the messianic kingdom, which we learned from the synoptics was being announced by John the Baptist and Jesus. And if you heard Pastor Ken's sermon last Sunday, you know, talked a lot about the kingdom, and so I don't need to go into that. Just that future millennial king. No one can enter that unless they're born again. Regeneration, being born again, regeneration will be necessary to you know, enter the kingdom that time. Only, only saved people will enter the kingdom. Uh, the word again, this word anothen, can have two possible meanings. It can mean again, as in Galatians 4.9, or it can mean from above. Every other usage in John 331, 1911, 23 means from above, born from above. I say here, I think most likely uh, Jesus meant from above. This is how it's used the other times, and it's used in verse 5 that way. Suggests this that the, the way things are used in verse 5 suggests this meaning. So I think Jesus was saying. Uh, you must be born from above. Uh, even though he, even though Nicodemus understands it, you must be born again. I'll explain that in just a moment here. Uh, Nicodemus understands it again, and he and and he and he mistakenly thinks that Jesus is saying he has to be born physically a second time. Uh, this. Born from above, or more, or again here, is a metaphor for the theological doctrine of regeneration. So the, the, the doctrine, the technical name for the doctrine is regeneration. Regen means generate again. <laughs> you know, generate again, born again. 
Well, here we're talking about spiritual birth. So we're talking about being spiritually born. So the technical name is regeneration, Titus 3, 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, this, uh, this is a metaphor. So the literal truth is regeneration. And now we're using figures of speech or metaphors to represent that literal truth. So the first metaphor is born again, born from above. There's the first one. Another metaphor is new creation. Paul says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation, a new beginning. It's the same idea. He doesn't use born again. It's a different metaphor, but it's the same idea of regeneration. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone in Christ, the new creation has come. We're new creatures. The old is gone. The new has come. So we have new life. We have a new nature. That's uh, regeneration. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I'll tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Now remember, Jesus is correcting Nicodemus' misunderstanding of the kind of birth he's referring to when he said, you must be born anothen. I think Jesus meant you must be born from above, but it can also mean again. Nicodemus thinks again. So now, Jesus, I'm going to correct what you think. It's not again. It's not an again birth. You don't have to be physically born again. That's what again means. Again means to repeat what you've done before. You know? I ate at Chili's again. I, you know, had a Starbucks coffee again. You know, I saw my brother again. You're repeating what happened before. Well, you don't need to be born, of, you know, physically again in that sense. So he's trying to correct that. But the question he says is, what I mean is unless you are born of water and spirit. What does he mean by water and spirit? Okay, well, there's a lot of different views on that, but I'm going to give you the correct view here. <laughs> All right, at least it's my view anyway, okay, we'll see. So one, Christian baptism. So Roman Catholics say, and maybe some others, um, you know, Church of Christ in a sense, baptism, regeneration, Lutherans kind of. <clears throat> if baptism is essential to regeneration, I'm arguing what's wrong with that view here. It's not, it's, not, it's not Christian baptism. If baptism is essential to regeneration, why is there no further reference to water or baptism in the rest of the passage? So as we read on in the passage, when Jesus is explaining further, he talks only about the work of the Spirit as we'll see. Just the work of the Spirit. That's all he talks about. This would be unusual terminology for water baptism. Uh, it's ridiculous to imagine Jesus reprimanding 
uh, Jesus reprimanded Nicodemus in verse 10 for his failure to understand the necessity of a Christian rite that had not yet been instituted. He says, remember, you are Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things later, he says. So he's reprimanding him. So you don't understand what I'm talking about? Well, it can't be Christian baptism. That hadn't been instituted yet. No one's been baptized as a Christian yet. Jesus hadn't died on the cross. There's, there's not been any Christian baptism yet. Uh, Jesus hasn't given the Great Commission to go baptize anybody yet. So Jesus can't be saying, hey, Nicodemus, you've got to be baptized first. Um, I say, of course, the rest of the New Testament teaches that baptism is not necessary for salvation. So we don't believe that this is Jesus is saying baptism. Here's one of the most popular views, natural birth. I say, although popular, this view is clearly incorrect. That's pretty dogmatic, isn't it? <laughs> Why do I think it's incorrect? It understands the water to refer to the ambiotic fluid that breaks from the womb shortly after, shortly before childbirth. So the idea is you've got to be born of water in the spirit. You've got to be born of that physical birth, and then you've got to have that, that spiritual birth. I say, however, there is no reference in the Bible or other ancient literature that equates birth with physical birth. So think about that for a moment. Uh, you, to you, that doesn't seem so far-fetched. Okay, that water, there's water. Uh, well, that's, it's interesting. There's no reference to that in the Bible or any ancient literature. There's nobody in the ancient world who talks about that ambiotic fluid and being born of water. There's no reference to that. Also, it's redundant in that it states the obvious. Remember, Jesus tells Nicodemus in verse 3 that he must be born again. In verse 4, Nicodemus misunderstands and in effect says, what must I do? In verse 5, Jesus explains, but this view would have Jesus explaining that in order to be born from above, you must first be born spiritually. The structure of verse 3 and 5 are exactly parallel. Born from above in verse 3 is replaced by born of water in verse 5. Now this seems all clear to me, but it's hard to convince those who have a different view on this. But Notice verse 3 and 5. Jesus says, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Nicodemus says, What in the world are you talking about? You know? You mean you got to be born physically again? Go back and be born in your mother's womb? Is that what you're talking about? That's an again birth. And Jesus says, No, here's what I mean by anothen. I mean, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and spirit. In other words, is Jesus saying, Nicodemus says, uh, I don't understand this. You know, what, what, explain again, what do you have to do to be born from above? Well, to get this spiritual birth, Nicodemus, first of all, you've got to be born physically. Now, why would you tell somebody that? <laughs> They're already born physically. They already got that. He wants to know, I, I got that. I've been born physically. What do I got to do? So the again are the from above is replaced by of water and the Spirit. Uh, I say here, notice, uh, the structure of verse 3 and 5 are exactly parallel. Born from above, 
replaced by born of water and the Spirit. To be born from above is the same thing as born of water and the Spirit, and thus cannot mean to be born physically. The use of only one preposition of in the original Greek, joining the two nouns water and spirit, speaks of a related concepts, not contrast. So that preposition of suggests with just not, not an additional preposition that water and spirit are speaking of the same thing and not two different things. Um, so this birth from above is a new kind of birth in contrast to our physical birth. So we can call it the new birth. It is a new birth. But it's not, I don't think this is talking about, you know, water there is the physical birth. But I admit, not everybody's convinced by my excellent explanation here. Number three, some say the word of God. I've had teachers, uh, one of my, I remember, very excellent teacher, who his view was the word of God here. This view faces many of the previous objections. Water and spirit would seem to refer to a single concept, not different ones. So water is the word of God and the spirit is the Holy Spirit. Now, it's true that the word of God is involved in regeneration. You've got to believe that's you know, true. But water is not mentioned in the rest of the passage. John's gospel has no emphasis on the use of the word, in word of God in regeneration. And every other non-literal use of the term water in the gospel speaks of imparting spiritual life. Like, but whoever drinks the water I give him will, have, will never thirst. Indeed, the water I will give him will, will become a spring, a spring of, of water welling up to eternal life. So the view I, I, I like uh, is number four. It's, this, is, this has become the most popular view among you know, Bible teachers and stuff today. Holy Spirit. This view understands water and spirit to be used symbolically for the work of the Spirit. Uh, water is used symbolically of the Spirit in John 7, 37. So just later, a little later on, on the last day and the greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So water is used there of the Spirit. I say here, water may speak more specifically of the cleansing from sin associated with the work of the transforming Spirit. Water and Spirit are commonly used in the Old Testament for the work of the Spirit. So remember, Nicodemus is supposed to know this stuff because he knows the Old Testament. Well, what would he find in the Old Testament? about water and spirit. He would find that those two things are tied together. Notice Isaiah 44, three through five. For I will pour water on thirsty land, on the thirsty land, and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit. See, I'll pour water, I'll pour out my spirit, and my blessings on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow. Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all impurities, from idols. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. So here's water, here's the spirit. Ezekiel 37, 9 through 10. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and said to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath, 
you know, come spirit, come wind, from the four winds and breathe into these slain. So we have here the idea of breath or wind associated with the spirit. So the point is, this is something that Nicodemus should have had some inkling into from the Old Testament. Verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Jesus tells Nicodemus that spiritual birth can only be accomplished by the action of God's spirit, the principle being that all forms of life reproduce after their kind. Like generates like. The word flesh here means human nature, as it does in 114. Remember, the word became flesh, became a human being, took upon himself human nature. So natural natural human birth produces people who belong to the earthly family or humankind, but not the children of God. Only the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Only He, the Spirit, produces a new nature. So the Spirit of God has to intervene, we know, if a person is to be born with spiritual life. Jesus goes on, The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. There is something mysterious about the Spirit's work in regeneration. So in order to help Nicodemus, Jesus draws an analogy from the wind, which works well since the Greek word for spirit, pneuma, can mean wind. Just like back in Ezekiel, he said, prophesy to the breath. That's the same word for spirit, ruach. Here it's the same word, pneuma, wind, spirit. So, um, so just as the wind can neither be understood or controlled by human beings, it's, it's the same with the Spirit. The Spirit is sovereign in His work. And, you know, we witness to people, we talk to people, we beg with people, we plead with people, but we can't make them Christians, you know? We just can't do it. It's the sovereign work of the Spirit. He, the wind blows where He desires. And, uh, you know, you hear its sound, but you can't tell where it's come from, you know? Uh, we only witness the effects of the Spirit, don't we? We see when a person is saved, their life is changed. We can see those effects, but we can't see the Spirit actually regenerating. We can't see if it's really happening. We, we don't know for sure we, until we see the effects of it. Verse 9, How can this be, Nicodemus asked? You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? So, unfortunately, Nicodemus was a religious man, a leader in Judaism, but had no understanding of the necessity of regeneration. I mean, that's the basis of a lot of tracts, you know. I mean, religious but lost, you know. And you, We used to have tracts, you know, you must be born again. Because when I was coming along... <laughs> I mean, there still is a lot of religious people, but it's amazing how many non-religious people there are today who have no religion, don't claim anything, don't go to church, don't do, you know, nothing. But, you know, 50 years ago, most people you met at least claimed religious, claimed Christianity or something, you know. And so you would always, well, okay, you're religious, but you've got to be born again, you know. Well, today, you know, they're not even religious. 
they don't know if they believe in God. You know, it's, it's much more difficult kind of situation in that sense, uh, humanly speaking. Um, so he has no understanding of regeneration. Judaism had essentially become a works religion. It still is today. As Paul's epistles bear witness. Paul talks about works, works the law, works. He's constantly battling faith works, faith works. But the Old Testament was not unclear about these things, as we have seen from the passages in Isaiah Ezekiel, also Ezekiel 11, 9, 19. I will give them an undivided heart, God says, and I will put a new spirit in them. I will remove from their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. So God's promising to do something for Israel. Yeah, they're His people, they're His covenant people, but they're mostly unregenerate. They're not really saved. They have the blessings of being God's people, but, you know, the covenant people of God, but they're not saved. And God says, I'm going to do this. Ezekiel 18, 31, Rid yourselves of all your offenses you've committed and get a new heart, a new spirit. This new heart is regeneration, a new nature. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new heart New spirit in, your, in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 11, Verily, truly, Very truly I say to you, we speak of what we know, we testify of what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. We hear no more of, from Nicodemus who disappears from the scene. Jesus is speaking not only to Nicodemus, but to you, plural, and you people, probably the Jewish nation here. You people. Verse 12, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? What does that mean? I have spoken to you of earthly things, but you don't believe. What, how will you then believe if I speak of heavenly? We might be tempted to take earthly things as referring to physical elements like wind, water, and natural birth, while heavenly things would point to the new birth. However, it's difficult to believe that Nicodemus would not believe in those things. That is, I've told you about earthly things. If earthly things means wind, water, natural birth, and Jesus says you don't believe, well, Nicodemus believes in those things, you know. So that, that's probably not what he's talking about. So the earthly things as are things Jesus has been discussing, particularly the new birth. That is, the new birth happens on earth. These are spiritual things that happen on earth. But if you don't understand the new birth that happens here on earth, if you don't experience that new birth, you're not going to believe in these heavenly things. You're not going to believe in things that are yet to come. You're not going to believe in eschatological, what, what uh, Dr. Snowberger is teaching over there. You're not going to believe in the future things about the kingdom and all the heaven. And all. You're not going to believe in any of that stuff if you don't have the new birth. You won't accept any of the wonders of the future kingdom. All right, we've gone past here, so let's stop here for tonight. Thanks for coming. Don't forget the memory verse next week. <laughs> it gets harder after this one. <laughs>